desperate dad called into a radio talk show. Broadcasted for the world to hear, he told of his wife's death and their little two-year-old daughter's struggle to cope. He said, every day I pick her up after work. I pick her up from daycare. I drive her home. I, I go into the kitchen. I fix dinner. And when I go to get her, I find her in her room crying. Every night, I find her weeping. And I don't know what to do. You have more resources than a two-year-old to process pain and to triage trauma and to heal hurts. But that doesn't mean that your pain is any less painful. Pain is an integral part of our human condition, is it not? From maybe the oldest book in the Bible, we read this. The patriarch Job said, man is short-lived and full of turmoil. His so-called friend Eliphaz observed, For affliction does not come from the dust, nor does trouble sprout from the ground. Man is born for trouble as sparks fly upwards. As, as certain as it is, uh, uh, sparks from a fire go uh, 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 arise, so, so trouble springs not from the soil. It doesn't come from outside of us. It springs from within us. Jesus said to his men, these things I have spoken to you so that you may have peace. In the world, you will have tribulation. Paul and Barnabas stated the obvious to believers in Asia Minor, Acts chapter 14. Through many tribulations, we must enter the kingdom of God. We don't like it. We pray God remove it from us. But we need pain. We need affliction. We need sorrow. We need difficulty. We need disappointment. For these are God's tools to discipline us to depend upon Him. We need to struggle. We need to suffer. On that fateful night where Jesus was betrayed, arrested, 
and summarily executed. Jesus' disciples were in a maelstrom of emotion. They were a mess. Just days before, they sat together for what turned out to be their last supper together. Just days before, Jesus healed a man who had been dead and buried for four days. That is totally unprecedented, never been heard of before on planet Earth. When news got out, the whole city of Jerusalem and all of its surrounds, including the little bedroom community where, uh, where Lazarus lived, Bethany, Jerusalem as a whole pulsated with hope and expectation. And everybody saw it in the Sunday prior to that Last Supper together when Jesus triumphantly entered into the capital. The city throbbed with excitement. Now, finally, Jesus was going to take control. And he would bring deliverance to his people from these rotten Romans. We're messing everything up. And that week, Jesus talked repeatedly about his death. That just didn't make any sense. How could Jesus be the long-awaited Messiah and yet be dead? The disciples tried to put all of these things together. On that fateful night, when they gathered together, Jesus said, there is, there is one who is going to betray me. Now that was not new information. He had previously said that to his men. That night he identified who it was. Chapter 13 of John's Gospel. Jesus said to his men, I'm going away, and where I am going, you cannot come. That sparked no small amount of consternation within the disciples. Their emotions early in the week were at the very pinnacle, thinking, this is it. This is the time. And then Jesus says, I'm going away. You, you can't come with me. 
And then Jesus said to Peter, you're going to deny me three times tonight. I can only imagine the rest of the disciples are thinking, if Peter, the bold, brash, strong, outspoken one, if he can deny Christ three times? Deny that he even knows him? What about me? If Peter can't withstand whatever pressure is coming, I, I, I certainly can't. From the height of emotion now to the very depth, Jesus speaks to his men who think to themselves, we don't know what to do. We continue in our study through the fourth gospel. And this morning we open up John chapter 14. In these opening verses, we find some of the most beloved verses in all of the Bible. These are on a parallel track, excuse me, parallel track with, with Psalm 23. It's these verses that people frequently want to have read at a funeral service. Because these are verses of comfort, encouragement, strength, of great joy in the midst of even the worst of circumstances. Now before I read the text, I, I have to remind you that when you Look at John chapter 14, verse 1, and some of you have these verses memorized, I'm certain of it. It's easy for us to think, well, we have begun um, something new. I, 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 have, I have to remind you that the chapter and verse divisions were not inspired by the Holy Spirit and were not written by the original authors. These were written hundreds of years after the fact. They're only some twelve or 1,300 years old. They were inserted at the latter end of the first millennia of the church to aid us in finding things. Now, it doesn't doesn't help matters when Bible teachers refer to John chapters 14, 15, and 16 as Jesus' upper room discourse. And we think when we have opened chapter 14, we've begun something new. Well, uh, uh, sort of. This is a continuation of Jesus' conversation with the eleven. Judas is gone now from the meal. This is after supper, or maybe at the very tail end of supper, that Jesus begins this conversation with his men. It's mostly a monologue, but not exclusively so. I'm sure there are many things that John does not include here. Maybe questions for clarification purposes that Jesus responds to, but it, but, but, but John compresses all of this together 
that's possible. What we need to remember is as we open chapter 14 and begin reading at verse 1, there is a larger context here. A context where the, the 11, the, the genuinely saved believers, the, the, the ones who would be his apostles, his sent ones, these men were in, uh, an emo- in, a, in the midst of an emotional roller coaster. They had experienced the highs and the lows of Jesus triumphantly entering into the city, raising Lazarus from the dead. And yet, Jesus saying, I'm going to be betrayed tonight. And I'm going to die tomorrow morning. Look with me at chapter 14. Beginning in verse 1, Jesus says to his men, Do not let your heart be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. In my Father's house are many dwelling places. If it were not so, I would have told you. For I go to prepare a place for you. If I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself. That where I am, there you may be also. And you know the way where I am going. Thomas said to him, Lord, uh, we do not know where you are going. How do we know the way? Jesus said to him, I am the way and the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. I've divided this section into two parts. First three verses, second three verses. Our comfort in Christ, our confidence in Christ. Point number one, our comfort in Christ. Jesus begins talking to his men who are confused, upset, sorrowful, not sure exactly what to think, how to feel, how to respond. Certainly in in a fog as to what is God doing in this situation. Jesus says to them, do not let your heart be troubled. We might render it Stop letting your heart be troubled. Some have translated this. Stop being troubled. Doesn't it make you mad when someone says to you, particularly when you are struggling um, maybe with sin or temptation. Doesn't, doesn't it make you mad when, when somebody just comes up to you and says, stop it. Stop your worrying. Stop your drinking. Or whatever the issue might be for you. Well, maybe that's easy for them to say, mm, I'm guilty. 
When, when, when I don't struggle with that particular sin, I just say, well, stop it. And I might even put an exclamation point after my exhortation. Quit it. It's madness. Don't do it anymore. Just stop. <laughs> Jesus said that to his men. Just stop. But he doesn't stop there with an exclamation point. It's almost like Jesus is giving us replacement therapy. He's saying, don't do this, but do this instead. Don't let your hearts be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. Replace your fear, replace your worry, replace your anxiety, replace your sorrow with trusting confidence. Now, in the original language, um, the word believe, appearing twice here at the end of verse 1, it's the very same word in the very same form. And the, the, the form of the word usually tells us the kind of, uh, of, of action that the author is, is um, intending for us. Uh, this particular verb can be rendered either in the indicative mood or the imperative mood. Let me explain. If something is in the indicative, it's um, a statement of fact. Here in this case, uh, this, this statement uh, believe in God could be an indicative, and if it's if that's the case, it's describing a condition that is present. We would render it: "You believe in God." If it's in the imperative mood, it's a command, a demand. Believe in God, and we might even put an exclamation point after that. Now, here, both of these verbs exactly the same in every way, could be in the indicative mood, could be in the imperative mood. It's not specified. Now, the New King James translation has, has the first verb being in the indicative mode, mood. That is, it is a statement of fact. You believe in God. The second verb is in the imperative mood, as they translate. Believe in me. The New American Standard that I read from just moments ago translates both, both as imperatives. So they are commands. Believe in God. Believe also in Jesus. I think, given the audience, given the context here, the New King James translation may be a little bit better. I, 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 I tend to lean that way. And we would understand it to be this, this kind of meaning and intention. You men, all of which were Jews, you believe in God. Statement of fact, indicative mood. Their Jewish heritage taught them there is only one God. 
Now, it doesn't, didn't mean that from uh, infancy they were uh, converted, that they were genuinely saved men, but they had at least a mental understanding that there was a God and they affirmed that there was a God. So they believed in that sense, maybe not in a saving way, but they affirmed that there was a God. You believe in God. Good. Jesus says, now, believe, command, an imperative, believe in me. So Jesus would be saying, you affirm that God created the world. You affirm that God rescued the Israelites from Egyptian captivity. You would affirm that Jesus, that God rather, uh, delivered that group of, of, uh, of, of people coming out of Egypt into the promised land. I who stand before you am the same God. Believe in me. Jesus is saying, gentlemen, I understand your emotions are everywhere. You're not sure exactly how to feel, what to think, how to understand, how to interpret all of this that is surrounding you. But trust me, I have this all under control. You affirm that God is God. He is the sovereign one. I who stand before you am the same. Put your trust in me. The only hope for a world, a soul in turmoil, is a soul that trusts in God. Believe in me. Put your hope here. Replace your worry with trust. Verse 2, Jesus continues. He's going to tell them why they should trust him. In my father's house are many dwelling places. If it were not so, I would have told you. For I go to prepare a place for you. Now, if you've been to funerals before and listen to John 14 being read, without doubt you have heard the King James version of this particular verse read. Um, uh, it, it is certainly the most uh, oft-quoted uh, version of John 14 too. In my Father's house are many, fill in the blank, many mansions, What do you think of when you think of the word mansion? You think, think of some big, extra, uh, 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 um, expansive, opulent, uh, lots of elbow room kind of property? Well, if that's the case, then maybe we need to take out an eraser and um, erase that image from your mind. The word mansion is is uh, is drug over 
into our English language directly from the Latin. And, and we get the Latin word in this particular verse from Jerome's translation of the Bible called the Vulgate, uh, simply meaning uh, the, the common language, um, from the 4th century A.D. Jerome was a contemporary of, of Augustine. So what, what I'm saying is that, that this particular uh, translation had its origin, that is translating this, this word for um, uh, mansion, had, had its origin uh, 1,700 years ago. And words change. Meanings change. Originally, the Greek word has its root in the verb to remain, to rest, or to stay. So when Jesus spoke this, John translated it into, into Greek. He said, in, in, my, in my father's house are many places to stay, places to rest, places to remain. Now that particular uh, noun uh, can refer to a temporary place to hang your hat or a permanent place to hang your hat. We know it is, is in reference here in verse 2 to a, a permanent place to rest our hat because of what Paul or what Jesus says at the beginning of verse 2, in my Father's house, which is a reference to heaven. In heaven, Jesus says, there are many places to hang your hat, many dwelling places. When we think of a mansion, we, we often think of, I think of, of a, of a, a house, a structure that is, is, uh, um, independent and far removed from other places. Well, we don't have to think of something that's far away, but when Jesus is here is speaking of dwelling places, he's not talking about a, 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 an expansive tract of homes. He's, he's not talking about hundreds and hundreds, maybe thousands and thousands of acres of subdivisions. He's talking about apartments that are all integrally interconnected to the main home, the Father's house, and to one another. So these, these dwelling places that Jesus is speaking of it, 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 it is like having um, finished apartments, furnished apartments, all interconnected with one another. It's all one big, oh, oh, so very large, home. Now Jesus says at the end of verse 2 that he is going to prepare a place. 
That does not mean that Jesus is going to dawn on his carpenter's um, belt and go to work constructing all of these dwelling places. No, they're already built. They're already painted. They're already furnished. As a matter of fact, the names of each resident are already printed and they're already nailed right beside the door of each dwelling place. So what's Jesus going? Why is he going away? What, 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 what is he seeking to prepare? His going has to do with his dying and resurrection. That's the preparation he needs. That's what has to take place before he can hand a believer the key to their particular apartment. In my Father's house are many dwelling places. I go to prepare a place for you. His dying and raising is to give each individual, each particular believer, access to the housing complex. Now, the middle of verse 2, I, I skipped over just now. Jesus says, if it were not so, I would have told you. Meaning, I'm gonna, I am a straight shooter with you guys. I'm not going to waffle on the truth. I'm going to be clear, concise. I am going to be accurate. I'm going to speak the truth to you. This is why I am going. And I'm doing this for your benefit. We can't forget that Jesus is speaking these words to comfort his men who are confused and are not sure what to do. In verse 3, Jesus says, If I go and prepare a place for you, again, referring to his death and his resurrection, I will come again and receive you to myself, that where I am, there you may be also. As, as sure and, and, and certain as Jesus' going is, so also is his coming. He has purpose in his mission every step of the way. Now, his his. His men did not fully understand. He has said so, uh, but it's, it, it's, it has been shrouded in fog. He, he, they haven't fully understood that Jesus' mission had two foci. He came first to redeem, and second to rule. His first coming was in, in order to go to the cross. 
That, that was the going for which he came. That triumphal entry was but a, a, a foretaste of his rulership that would come subsequently. If he came, or, or rather, I'm sorry, if he, if he goed, if he goed, if he went to prepare a place for them, he said, with, with the same kind of certainty, I am going to come again to you so that where I am, you may be also. First Thessalonians chapter 4, Paul says, and so, so we will always be with the Lord. If we die here um, uh, before he comes, or if we are still here when he comes, we will always be with the Lord. That, my friends, is greatly comforting, no matter what the circumstances may be that surround us. Second page of your notes, point number two. We've talked about our, our, our comfort in Christ. Point number two, our confidence is in Christ. Jesus says in verse four, and you know the way where I am going. His emphasis is on the way he is going. But his, his, his men are focused on the where he is going. If you look up in chapter 13, um, Peter says in verse 36, Lord, where are you going? Jesus answered him on that occasion, where, where, where I go, you, you cannot follow me. But you will follow, but not right now. Um, verse 5 of chapter 14, Thomas picks, picks up that, that same question. Lord, we, we don't know where you're going, how do we know the way? Again, he wants to know the where question. He, he wants an address. He wants uh, um, GPS coordinates. Uh, he wants to Google map it. He wants to find out what, where is Jesus going. This is their mindset. They're still thinking about Jesus raising Lazarus. They're still thinking about that awesome power. They're thinking about Jesus walking into Jerusalem in triumph. What awesome power! What authority! And yet he keeps talking about dying? Is it possible? They're trying to, to put all of these pieces together in one mission for Jesus rather than two. Jesus, are you going someplace to hide? Is there a way that you can do all this and escape death? Where are you going? They don't understand yet. Patiently, Jesus speaks to them. Verse 6. I am the way and the truth and the life. 
No one comes unto the Father except through me. Let's spend a little bit of time looking at that verse. It is uh, deep, it is broad, it is amazing. There are seven um, I am statements that are followed by a predicate by Jesus. And, that, and what that means is, is that seven times in this particular gospel record, Jesus says, I am, and then there is something else in, in the blank. Uh, I am uh, the bread of life, chapter 6. I am the light of the world, chapter 8. I am the door. I am the good shepherd, uh, chapter 10. Uh, I am the resurrection and the life, uh, chapter 11. Here, this isn't 6. This is, this is I am statement number 6, where Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. We find the seventh in chapter 15, next chapter. Um, each time, Jesus uses the same phrase, I am. And in Greek, we've talked about this before, as we've, we've, as we've encountered this uh, on multiple occasions uh, in John's Gospel before. Um, Jesus uses uh, the pronoun I and uh, the verb I am. Um, he, he, he didn't have to use both words. Either one will say the same thing. Um, but with emphasis, he says, I, I am. Now, he's, he's, he, he's doing that with intention. The Greek translation of, of um, uh, Exodus chapter 3, verse 14, where Jesus, I'm sorry, where Moses Here's from uh, God at the burning bush. Uh, we read in, in Exodus 3.14. Um, God says to Moses, Thus you shall say to the sons of Israel, I am has sent me to you. Uh, it's, it's the same phrase. Jesus is claiming deity in the use of this phrase. If you look over at John chapter 8, uh, at the end of that chapter, there is another declaration by Jesus using the phrase, I am. This one doesn't have a predicate. It, 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 he doesn't say, I am the, and then fill in the blank. He doesn't use it in that sense. Um, he says in, in verse 58 of John chapter 8, and by the way, you'll, you'll notice in your notes that I, I made an error. I said, this is in John chapter 5. It's in chapter 8, verse 58. Jesus said to um, some hostile Jews on that occasion, Truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was born, I am. That only makes sense if Jesus existed before Abraham did. Now, when Jesus spoke this, Abraham had been dead for 2,000 years. And Jesus says, before Abraham was, I am? It's a little jarring. Well, the Jews understood what he meant. The next verse reads, they picked up stones. Therefore, they picked up stones to throw at him. They understood that he was claiming to be God. 
in their mind, in their thinking, that was a blasphemous charge, worthy of stoning. So they picked up stones. Now, Jesus eluded their, their, uh, their desires on that particular occasion. Back in um, John chapter 14, Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. Now, honestly, that, that, that's a, a very um, narrow and exclusive statement. There is only one way, one truth, one life. It's all found in Jesus. And apart from Jesus, no one is going to find the Father. That's very narrow. It's very exclusive. But that doesn't necessarily mean that it's wrong. Most of you still drive a car that consumes gasoline. You'll find a little sticker on, uh, uh, on the, the, uh, the, the little door to your gas tank and probably on your dash as well. It says, unleaded fuel only. Uh, you put water, Coke, Milk, uh, uh, melted ice cream into your gas tank, and you will no go, no mas. Uh, uh-uh. uh, you're done. Well, it's 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 a narrow, exclusive demand. Unleaded fuel only. That doesn't mean it's necessarily wrong. Now, in 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 this country, we have this thing uh, called a, 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 a Bill of Rights that has a, a number of amendments to our Constitution. And the first one gives all of us legal protection to worship as we choose. Now, there are some that think that because of the First Amendment... That gives validity and a truth status to everybody's religion. Your way is just as good as my way, and and your truth leads to God just like my truth leads to God. Well, that's that's inaccurate. Uh, the, the logic does not necessarily follow. Um, the First Amendment simply gives you the freedom to do what you'd like to do there with regard to your worship. It, it doesn't speak to the truthfulness or the validity of, of your particular religion. Jesus says, no man comes unto the Father except through me. There is an exclusivity to Jesus' claim. Now, when he says, I am the way, I am the truth, I am the life. The, 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 the arrangement, the, the syntactical um, arrangement of those words allows us to switch the subject and the predicate. So not only is Jesus the way, the way is Jesus. Not only is Jesus the life, 
The life is Jesus. Not only is Jesus the truth, the truth is Jesus. It's all wrapped up in Him. Our hope, our security, our comfort, our confidence is wrapped up in the person of Jesus. Isaiah says in uh, his famed 53rd chapter, all of us like sheep have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way. Oh, and there are a plethora of ways to God. You hear that from people all the time. But Jesus is the one and only way, the one and only truth, the one and only life. I printed these scripture references in your notes. Let me just read them to you. Acts chapter 4, there is salvation in no one else, says Peter. For there is no other name under heaven by which given, that has been given among men, by which we must be saved. Paul says to Timothy, there is one God and one mediator between God and men, the man, Christ Jesus. John says earlier in his gospel record, No one has seen God at any time. The only begotten God who is in the bosom of the Father, He has explained Him. And Jesus says of Himself in John chapter 10, I am the door. If anyone enters through Me, He will be saved. With that alongside the end of John chapter 14, verse 6. And unless they enter through Christ, or only if they enter through Christ, will they be saved. Jesus did not show us the way. He is the way. Jesus did not inform us of the truth. He is the truth. Jesus did not give us a prescription for life. He is life. He is our hope. Our confidence is in Him. Not in our circumstances, not in some kind of self-help mantra. Our hope is in Christ. Thomas Akempis was an Augustinian monk who died uh, a few years prior to Martin Luther's birth. He wrote a devotional book titled The Imitation of Christ. And he gives an expanded understanding of John 14, verse 6. Listen. This is what Jesus is saying in effect through the pen of Thomas Akempis. Follow thou me. I am the way and the truth and the life. Without the way, there is no going. Without the truth, there is no knowing. Without the life, there is no living. 
I am the way which thou must follow, the truth which thou must believe, the life for which thou must hope. I am the inviolable way, the infallible truth, the never-ending life. I am the straightest way, the sovereign truth, life true, life blessed, life uncreated. Henry Venn was an Anglican preacher in the 19th century, best known for his contribution to the Protestant missionary movement. According to his biographer, while he was on his deathbed, Henry Venn pondered the glory of Christ in heaven that was soon to be his. His uh, biographer wrote, The prospect of being in heaven with the Lord made him so high-spirited and jubilant that his doctor said that his joy at dying kept him alive for two more weeks. <laughs> Such is our confidence in the person of Christ. I close by way of application, directing your heart and your mind to Psalm 56. The superscription of Psalm 56, well, for all of the Psalms, uh, often give us an idea of the author's intent and how it is to be played or how it is to be sung. And sometimes there's even a little bit of context so that we understand what the author was thinking or feeling or or what was going on circumstantially that led to the writing of these particular words. The superscription in Psalm 56 tells us, When the Philistines seized him in Gath. This was a psalm written by David. You will remember the story when David was... Um, was um, um, after he had been anointed to be the next king of Israel, he was employed by the king, um, married the king's daughter. Um, but the one who was the tall, dark, handsome, and mentally deranged king, King Saul, um, when, when he wanted to get rid of David, sought to kill David, David, on a, a few occasions, ran for his life. And on this particular occasion, when he was, was uh, thinking the words that would become Psalm 56, he had this crazy idea in his mind. David thought, you know, if I want to get rid of Saul, if I want to escape, 
I'm going to go where he's not going to look. I'm going to go into the land of the Philistines. Saul would never look for me there. And David was not wrong. However, he didn't think things through very well. Because he went to the city among the Philistines, the city of Gath. Who was their town hero? This small little guy named Goliath. And who killed the local hometown hero? None other than David. So he knocks on the door of the city seeking asylum. First Samuel chapter 21 reads this way. Then David arose and fled that day from Saul and went to Achish, king of Gath. But the servants of Achish said to him, said to the king, Is this not David, the king of the land? Did they not sing of this one as they danced, saying, Saul has slain his thousands and David his ten thousands? David took these words to heart and greatly feared Achish, king of Gath. It was at this point that David realized, whoops, I should have thought this thing through a little bit more fully. So, so, so now he is surrounded by the soldiers of the Philistines. Verse 13, just to give you some context so that you see how David escaped from this. He, he disguised his sanity before them and he acted insanely in their hands and scribbled on the doors of the gate and let his saliva run down into his beard. And Achish says, I don't need another one of these mental jobs. Get rid of this guy. It was in that moment when David was surrounded by these Philistine soldiers that he penned Psalm 56. At least he penned it in his mind until he got pen and paper in hand, if he didn't have it already. Verse 3 of Psalm 56. David writes, When I am afraid, I will put my trust in you. In God, whose word I praise, in God I have put my trust. He didn't know how things were going to end. But he put his confidence in the Lord. English Puritan John Owen noted, quote, a sense of God's presence in love is sufficient to rebuke all anxiety and fears. And not only so, but to give in the midst of them solid consolation and joy. That was David's experience before Achish and the Philistines. He was confident 
in God's person, in God's presence with him. And that gave him strength. That gave him reassurance in the midst of his sorrow. Remember the dad of the distraught two-year-old? Who didn't know what to do? The radio talk show host, host had some words of wisdom for this man. He counseled him, when, when, when you get home from work, after picking up your daughter at daycare, don't go straight into the kitchen to fix dinner. Find your, your, your daughter's favorite blanket or stuffed animal. And sit in the rocker your wife used to sit in with her. Just hold her. Rock her. Stroke her hair. Remember, her world is in turmoil too. She doesn't need dinner right away as much as she needs you. In the same way, Jesus comforts us with his love. Let's pray. Our blessed Lord, there is no one like you. You are our way, our truth, our life. And we come to you humbly seeking the face of the Father. We seek to crawl into your lap. In the midst of things we don't know, we don't understand, we can't wrap our mind around. We come to you for comfort and for strength, for guidance. And we thank you that you are present with us here. To comfort us and remind us you are still in control. In Jesus' name we pray with great thanksgiving.